I'm excited about 2022. Are you excited about 2022? Well, I hope you are. And I'm looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us. What he has in store for you. You who are ready to go to live life for his glory. What better way? What better thing to do? And I'm excited about what God's going to do at RBC. You're going, really? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm actually getting excited right now. I was kind of down earlier this morning. But now that I get to preach, you know what? It's, it, it's good because I see all your smiling faces. I'm excited to begin a new sermon series as well. It's a, the sermon series in the book of Ephesians. And it's called God's Master Plan. God's Master Plan. And you would ask, well, well, why Ephesians? Well, simply this. It's one of the, the crown jewels in the Scriptures. If you're going to preach something before you die, I hope I'm not a prophet right now, you need to preach Ephesians. Well, why Ephesians? Because in this six-chapter book that was written in a time when a man was in a dark place, but yet not dark mentally or spiritually, but physically it was a dark place for him, he gave us the purposes of God. The purposes of God in salvation are found in this little six-chapter book. The plan of salvation relating to mankind, and each one of you are part of mankind. It explains how God, by Christ's work, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit, has accomplished cosmic reconciliation. Cosmic reconciliation. That's some big words, but it was a big task. Well, what does cosmic reconciliation lead to? Well, it leads to unity. Ephesians speaks about unity with the church, with God, first of all, with the church and with one another. It has the most one another's in all the Scripture. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, it discusses the nature, the purpose, and the mystery of the church. Really? Why is the church here? Why did, why did Christ, for lack of a better term, invent this thing? And along with these doctrinal truths, the book instructs us how we are to wage spiritual war against an unseen enemy. How do we fight a spiritual enemy that we can't see but we know is there? How do we fight it? The book of Ephesians tells us we fight it through the Lord. Well, there are many ways that we could describe Ephesians. When I went to seminary, you, when you read the Bible, they, they gave you the opportunity, gave you the opportunity, they, they said, you will do this. You had to write one word for every book of the Bible, they gave you the word to write. And you had, actually had to remember this. For my memory, that's not a good thing. But you had to go, they gave you a test on this. And for Ephesians, the one word that they wrote 
probably the only one that would actually even remember this is Doobie in the back, but he probably doesn't remember it because he's rocking his kid. The one word, position. Position. Your position in Christ. It's who you are. And because of that firm, solid, unshakable position, it leads in a confidence. It leads to a confidence in life. It helps you live. And it changes your life because of the confidence in God. You know He has you. And it makes a difference. Another way to say it, maybe keeping with P's, and you don't have to write this one down, but if you did have a, if you did have a paper Bible, well, I'd write position underneath that. It's, it's good. Ephesians is also practical. James Boyce says it this way, and I quote, What is the appeal of this book? In my judgment, it is just this. It presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and winsomely. Now, you know I wouldn't write that because I wouldn't use the word winsome. But practicality, how do we live? This book teaches us that. Well, these two words, position and practical, are why we'll be encamped in Ephesians, God willing, through the end of spring. So, We'll be here until the first part of June, so I hope you like Ephesians. Well, we begin today with an introduction to Ephesians, and you might say, well, why are you talking about this? Why do we need to have an introduction? Why don't you just get into it? Because the introduction is important. At Rosedale Bible Church, the folks in the pulpit, we, we teach in what is and preach in what's called expository, an expository way. It's, I thought I could take this thing off, but I can't see even to my wife there, so I better put it back on. There we go. An, ex, an expository way, which means we teach from the Scriptures and we teach verse by verse. So why do we teach verse by verse? Because it forces you the preacher, to teach the whole counsel of God. And when you teach the whole counsel of God, you, you teach, you know, and you know what's coming next week because it's what's coming next in God's Word because when God had His men write the Word, He wrote it in a certain way. Now, we teach from the Scriptures and we do it in a way that comes from a certain hermeneutic. And you're going, what in the world is a hermeneutic? Dennis, I'm going to test you afterwards. He's shaking his head. You're going, what? Simply means, hermeneutic simply means this, and I'm going to make sure I write it, I wrote it down. It's a method or a theory of interpretation. Well, how do you read the Scriptures? How do you look at that? And you're going, well, I, I look at it and it just... It just must be a story, right? They're just writing the scriptures about, and they're just, they're just making this stuff to have a, a higher meaning. Well, no, it's not that. The hermeneutic that I was taught and I believe is the best is called a grammatical historical hermeneutical. 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 A hermeneutic. All right, so what that means is this grammatical. What's a grammar? It's words, how they're written, 
what order they're in, what the words mean. And it makes a difference how they're being used. And what I normally use and what folks normally use in the pulpit here is a literal interpretation. Somebody would say, well, you're, you're reading everything literally? Yes and no. Follow me. Yes and no. There are allegorical things in the Scriptures. And an allegory, and allegory is this way, it's characters or stories. We had a lot of allegories in Revelation. But the hint is, if it's an allegory, when it says as or like, it's explaining, it's using a picture to explain a truth. Well, there are some of those in there. There are also metaphors, words put together to describe or compare an unrelated object. All right, so this is a metaphor. She was as mad as a wet hen. Now, what's that mean? For those of you who've ever seen a wet hen, they're mad. They don't like it. They shake up and they get with it. Okay, that's just painting a picture. It's an adjective. But we also use hyperbole. Well, what's hyperbole? Hyperbole is using a, a word or something to go, just almost absurd. Maybe it won't be absurd. Here's hyperbole. I could eat a million of those things. Maybe this time of year it's not a good thing to speak of. It might not be hyperbole. I probably could eat a million of those. Concerning understanding what we're reading, we also have genre. Now, genre is, we have narrative, you have historical narrative, you have poetry, you have doctrine. But do you know that you do that yourself? You use, you figure out what kind of genre you read every day. You recognize a comic strip, strip don't you? You look at a comic strip and you do not read that the same way that you would read a bill that you're going to get for Christmas. You also don't read a bill the same way that you would get a letter from a loved one or an email or a text. You interpret poems different than historical books. We understand that. And that's grammatical. But what about historical? What about historical? What, that simply means we have to find out what was going on at that particular time so we could get the reason, the fancy word, the authorial content, intent, excuse me, the authorial intent of what the author wanted to say to these people. Why is that a big deal? Paul was writing this from prison. And he said some of the most glorious things. What were the receiving group? It makes a difference. If we're in the middle of a depression, if we're in the middle of a war, if we're in the middle of happy times, we have to do the work to find out what that was. Are we in famine or are we in prosperity? Well, what about different cultures? We are not in the same culture that the first century Christians were in. How many of those, how many people do you know have been, had stones cast at them in the last two, mm, year? 
because they took the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't happen, does it? Well, what we're going to do for the rest of the morning regarding Ephesians is understand these things that I just talked about. So I would ask you that if you would stand with me, because you're going to do some work for me. I'm going to have you read with me the first two verses of Ephesians. If you need a Bible, one is found, a blue one probably in the front of you. It's on page 976, or you can read it on the screen. But I would like you to read with me. The word of the Lord says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. May it do glorious and marvelous things in our life through the Spirit. May it change us, sustain us, and give us hope in our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. You may be seated. Well, we begin with something easy. Who the author is. One word. Paul. Paul. Well, you might, before we get into it, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, all right? The book of Acts. And we're going to find out who this man who wrote Ephesians was and is. All right, so Acts chapter 7, and at the end of Acts chapter 7, we find out this man's name was originally Saul. We're finally, we, he comes into the picture. He's introduced. And what's he doing? He's holding the coats, the jackets, the, overco the overcoats of some guys that just did what I just talked about. They took stones and they killed Stephen, they threw stones and they wiped him out. He died. And he was in great, great agreement with him. His name was Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Saul was from. That's who he was from. And again, we met him in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Well, Saul was a man who was known as and was a devoted rabbi. He was a teacher. He had sat under the most famous rabbi in Israel at the time. Equivalency, I don't know how many PhDs this man had. It probably would have been at least two, upwards to three. This guy was a super, had a super intellect. He was on fire. He would make me nervous to be around him. And I'm not even talking about when he was Saul. He would make me nervous being around him as Paul. What he did, he hated, he despised Christianity because he thought it was abhorrent. He thought they were blaspheming. How can you worship this man, Jesus? How can you do that? It's against everything that Judaism has ever taught. And he sought to destroy the newborn church. And we see that in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. That's where we're turning next. But this man, I love it, 
as one man said, Saul was arrested. He was arrested by Jesus himself and was converted. Well, what had he gone to do? He had gone, he'd gotten some papers, some basis, some documents where he could take these things, and he went and threw Christians and Christian families into prison. And some of them died. He even had some killed. This guy was a bad man, if you were a Christian. And the man once known as Saul of Tarsus, which was where he was from, he became Paul. Why? Because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. You'll see that in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 15. Well, what can we learn from this man's past? What can we learn from his past? He was one of the most devout men before and after his conversion that there ever were. And he thought that by doing what he was doing, that he was serving God. But he, even though he was devout, even though he thought he was doing the right thing, he was wrong. He was wrong. He was misguided and wrong. Saul thought he was serving God by destroying what he thought was heresy. But we know from other passages in the Bible, again, he studied at the highest seminary level. But he was wrong. In his age, he said that he was the highest advanced person in Judaism. He was top of the orbit. He had advanced farther than any other Jew. He had kept the outward appearance of the law, a Jew above all other, others, yet he was off track. He was zealous to keep the man-made rules and traditions instead of adhering to what God had always intended. And here's another thing we have to be careful of. We must be wary of making that mistake. Man-made tradition. We don't follow tradition, 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 as Fiddler on the Roof would sing. One more important truth we can learn from this man is no one is too far gone. No one is too far gone to be used by God, no matter what your past is. If you're chosen by God to do his work, you will do it. So for some of you who have past where you're going, God will never use you, no. God can and will use you. Well, we continue, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. It's important to understand what an apostle is. Well, what is an apostle? You know, the word was often used in reference to ships being sent. Ships being sent. Cargo for military expeditions. They're sent. Well, we know this man's not a ship. That's a little grammar effort here. We're looking, okay, well, we're doing some work here. He wasn't a ship. In other sources of Greek literature, the word refers to a single person as an envoy or an emissary. Hmm, an envoy or an emissary. In our world, that would be an ambassador. 
of representative. Think of a na our nation, we send ambassadors to certain places, certain nations. Keep that thought in the back of your mind. Just plant it, stick it there. In the New Testament, the word apostle most often refers to people in an official office. I don't mean a work office, I mean this. I don't mean a work office, I mean an office as such as an office of the president. These men were apostles. We're speaking now of the 12, the 12 apostles. They're named in Matthew 10 and Mark 3. And I would call them this. I'm not going to be, since I didn't watch any football yesterday until I got home from Fresno, I watched about 20 minutes of it. They have cheerleaders. They're doing this and this and this. A big A apostle. All right? That's what I'm talking about. The big A. Those were the 12. Not just a person who is sent on a mission or some kind. Now, when I say big A, I'm talking about and I'm making sure that something is very narrow and precise. I'm talking about a New Testament apostle. All right, look at our Ephesians text and then I'll explain. Paul, an apostle of Christ. Keep your, keep your hands in Acts, though. Keep your hands in Acts. Turn back to the beginning of Acts chapter 1. I'm getting some of you guys who are using your iPads. Click back there. All right, in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, in chapter, verses 21 and 22, the apostles are gathered together, and they're saying, we have to choose a new apostle. Well, why, why do they need a new one? Why would they need a number? They had 11. Why would they need 12? Well, they, because Jesus gave them 12 or called 12. But what happened to the 12th? He had betrayed Christ, and he'd committed suicide. So they were to 11. What's the criteria? What's the criteria of a New Testament apostle? Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. So it's pretty precise. Why I'm saying this is I'm going off trap here, track, I'm down a rabbit hole really quickly. Some folks today claim to be apostles. No. They're little A apostles if they think. May, they might have been sent. They might have been sent to do something, but they're not big A apostles where they're talking with the Lord and the Lord uses them to speak his word. They write, they speak, and it was as if they were speaking from God himself. That's how we get the New Testament. Well, there were other apostles besides the 12 who had this office, Barnabas. James, the Lord, Lord's brother, he saw Jesus after his resurrection. And Paul, who the Lord himself had revealed on the Damascus road. When Paul was going to Damascus with letters in hand, when he was going to put 
Christians in jail, in prison. The Lord knocked him off of his horse. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And in fact, Paul received the gospel. He tells us by direct revelation from Jesus, he says this in Galatians 1.12. These men, these apostles were sent out on a mission with fully delegated authority by their masters. Remember, an emissary, an ambassador. These men went and they spoke. And when they spoke and wrote, it was as if the same thing that came from Jesus and his authority behind it. And this is the authority that Paul used. Notice that he didn't say to the Ephesians, I'm Paul with all these little letters behind my name. It's Paul, an apostle. Not Paul with a super intellect. Not Paul who has done so much for Jesus. But an apostle because of God's choice. God's choice. And this will be a common theme throughout Ephesians. It's God's choice. God's sovereignty. God's decision. Paul was in the position he was in because of God's decision. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. By the decision of God. Now, please hear me. It wasn't because Paul was talented, driven, exceptionally intelligent that he was deemed to be an apostle. It was not that. He was all these things. But it was God's decision to use him. If you're still in Acts, turn to chapter 9, verses 15 and following. Christ told Ananias this. Ananias was given the duty to go tell, go grab Paul and give Paul the gospel. And Christ said, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. My chosen instrument. Later today, if you are taking notes, write down the passage six, uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two and following, and you'll see how much he had to pay, how much he had to suffer, but yet he did. Paul understood the great gift that he had been given. He spent the rest of his natural life proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. Well, who were the recipients? Come on, this is easy. The Ephesians, right? The Ephesians. Well, before we talk about the Ephesians, we need to understand what a saint is. The saints in Ephesus is what the Bible tells us, what Paul wrote. Well, what's a saint? How many of you are from a Roman Catholic background? Okay, we have a few. Yeah. All right. So the original language calls them holy ones. Now, I'm only asking that because saints in a Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic religion, they're quite different than saints in the Scriptures. 
Well, since the original language calls saints the holy ones, you might be starting to think, well, you know, that's only for a select group, right? You were talking about offices before, A, you know, big capital A or small, little small A. Is this a capital S? I'm not, please, I'm not going to do it. So there you go. There's, there's the S. Have capital S's? Small case saint? No, when Paul speaks of saints here, he's speaking of all believers. All believers. Let me read from a pastor who explains what we need to understand. He writes, and I quote, We think saints are dead people who have achieved some, such spiritual eminence that they have been given that special title, saints. Or are they? No word in the New Testament has suffered more than the word saint. Even the dictionary defines a saint as a person officially recognized for holiness of life. Well, who makes this official recognition? Recognition, excuse me. Usually some religious body. And the process by which a person becomes a saint is technically known as canonization. The deceased person's life is examined carefully to see whether he or she qualifies for sainthood. If the candidate's character and conduct are found to be above reproach, if they've been responsible for working at least two miracles, then they are qualified to be made a saint. As interesting as this procedure is, we do not find this authorized in the Scriptures. Nine times in his brief letter, in this brief letter, Paul addresses his readers as saints. These saints were alive, not dead, though once they had been dead in their trespasses and sin, and it is clear that they had never performed any miracles, though they had experienced the miracle of themselves by trusting Christ as Savior. The word saint is simply one of the many terms used in the New Testament describe one who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. The person is alive, not only physically, but also spiritually You'll find Christians called disciples, people of the way, and saints. And the word saint means one who has been set apart by God. It is related to the word sanctified, which means set apart. When the sinner trusts Christ as Savior, he is taken out of the world and placed in Christ. The believer is in the world physically, but not of the world spiritually I like this. Like a scuba diver, he exists in an alien environment because he possesses special equipment. In this case, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Every true believer possesses the Holy Spirit, and it is through the Spirit's power that the Christian is able to function in the world. Close quote. You are saints. You are saints if you've been saved. Is it a different way to look at yourself? To look at yourself the way God looks at you if you're in Christ? You might need to say that. You might need to go look in the mirror. Because we often look like this because we know we've fallen short, but we look at it. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Live like it. Live like it. 
What about Ephesus? What was Ephesus like? It was an interesting place, let me tell you. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, you had Alexandria, and then you had Ephesus. Borrowing from James Montgomery Boyce, he wrote, Ephesus was a capital of the pro-counselor Asia, and as such was the political and commercial center of a large and prosperous region. We, Turkey is where Asia is, what they speak of in the scriptures. That is why Paul spent that much time there. Ephesus was on the Caesar River, not far from the Aegean coast. Its port was large and so became the chief communication and commercial link between Rome and the east. Merchants flocked to it. It became a melting pot of nations and ethnic groups, Greek and Roman, Jew and Gentile, mingled freely in the streets. Sounds like Los Angeles. Ephesus boasted the largest of all Greek open-air theaters. Wow, it's really starting to sound like Los Angeles. It held 25,000 spectators, this theater did. There was a stadium for chariot races and fights with animals. Chiefly, however, Ephesus boasted of its great temple to Diana or Artemis. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world, this temple. It was huge. It measured 425 feet by 220 feet by 60 feet. It housed the statue of Diana, believed to have come down from heaven. The temple was a depository for huge amounts of treasure and was, in effect, the Bank of Asia. It was served by hundreds of priestesses of Diana who were temple prostitutes. To this city is the city that Paul came to preach briefly in his second missionary journey. He just stopped in. And I think he thought to himself, I got to come back here. This is a place where I get some believers here. It's going out. You do know it was the first stop in Revelation 7 churches, right? That's where they went, the seven, the postal, the postal route. Paul came to preach here and in his third missionary journey, he spent two to three years in this place. Two to three years. And he established a faithful church, God did there, to the Christians of this city, attempting to live for God in the midst of utter paganism. The apostle directs this letter. Wow. But before he wrote the letter, it had been many miles and many years. He just didn't come back through to Ephesus. When he left Ephesus the last time, he went another place, and then he came back to a different town, which was really, really close, and he spoke to the Ephesian elders. With tears, he left them because he knew he would not see them face to face again. Then he went to Jerusalem. We know what happens in Jerusalem because a big uproar started and he was thrown into prison, which they took him to Caesarea Philippi because he, they were going crazy. The Jews wanted to kill him. He was thrown in jail there, went on trial for a year to a year and a half there, and then he said, I appeal to Caesar, and then he was sent to Rome. 
That's in Acts 20, all the way from 23, I believe, all the way to 28. He's going to Rome, and he's thrown into jail in Rome. He's under house arrest. He has chains on him, and he writes what are called the prison epistles, Ephesians being one of them. And sometime during the year 60 to 62, he wrote this marvelous book. Now think about this when things happen to you and you go, God, why are you doing this to me? Why, are you, why do you have me in a place where I really don't want to be? Do you realize that we would not have had the, make sure I get this right, we would not have had the letter of Philippians. I know there are a few people in here who Philippians is their favorite book. You wouldn't have had the letter of Colossians and Philemon. God indeed made something that seemed a very bad thing, imprisonment into a very good thing, a letter that not only gave the churches around Ephesus the truth, it was given to the Christian church, us, these marvelous doctrines as well. Well, before we go on, and we're getting close to the end, I'd like to mention one of the textual arguments that the letter wasn't written to the Ephesians. In the three, one of the, or not one of, three of the earliest manuscripts, I can get this right, one, two, three. Three of the earliest manuscripts, the word translated in Ephesians, in Ephesus, excuse me, in Ephesus are not there. You say, well, what does that matter? To me, it really doesn't matter because what was written is the same. But okay, let's just say in Ephesus are absent. Or in Ephesus are absent. Okay, fostering the idea. Well, this was written to go around to all a bunch of different churches. Maybe it would be in, in Laodicea, in Thyatira. And they say that because Ephesus was the largest and most famous city in the area, that's why it was given the name. Okay. I'm just giving you this because when you have somebody come to you, you go, well, it's not even written to the Ephesians. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. There are arguments for both possibilities, but it doesn't change what the Word of God reveals. Paul finishes the first verse by restating a truth. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And again, let's review. Let's review. Every person who has trusted Christ is called a saint. Why? Why is that? Because every person who has trusted Christ, who is in Christ, has been, are in Christ. They've been set apart and made holy, made a saint through a, the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been placed to his or her account. We can look at it in two different vantage points. From God's point, from his side, Believers are those whom he has made holy, which is the meaning of saints. From man's side, believers are those who are faithful, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
It's just another way to say those who have trusted Christ. It's not about the actions. And now we come to the greeting to the faithful. The common Christian greeting to their fellow brothers and sisters in the early days of the church. Simply this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor. I've heard it said this way, grace is the gospel in one word. God's unmerited favor. And since we're sticking with the grammatical, who is, who is the one, who's the object of the divine favor? Who's it to? It's to you. Grace to you. Grace to the Ephesians, of course, but grace to you. Twelve times the word grace is used in Ephesians. It's an important theme. And because of this grace, we have what? We have peace. Does anybody need peace in this room? You have it if you have Christ. Peace, shalom, in its highest form signifies spiritual prosperity and completeness. Spiritual prosperity. Give me some of that. I need that, and I need it in abundance. And I have as much as I need. Peace is possessing and being in a constant state of well-being, no matter the circumstances. And this is given from God to you, making it possible not only to have peace with God, which is, borrowing a Billy Crystal analogy, simply marvelous, but also have peace with one another. We can have peace with those in our same room. which is icing on the proverbial cake. If grace and peace came from a human source, there'd be reason for doubting. There'd be reason to think that this this is not going to last. But the provider of grace and peace comes from where? You read it. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Remember when I mentioned that the words in Ephesus, in Ephesus, might not be in the original writing, and that it may indicate that in its original form, the letter was designed for several different churches. But whether that is true or not, one copy of the letters they wrote in Ephesus on that copy. And it was certainly directed to the Christians in Ephesus, and this means the faithful servants who were in Christ were nevertheless also in the world, in Ephesus, and were obliged to live for Christ there in the same way that you live for Christ in Bakersfield, in Texas, in Mexico, in New York, in France, wherever you're at, wherever God has placed us. And our world is very much like Ephesus. Think with me. 
Was Ephesus extremely commercial and materialistic? Oh, we're not that way, right? As we just get out of Christmas time. Was it pagan, preoccupied with sex, superstitious? Uh, so are we. What can keep Christian people faithful to God in such environments? What can enable them to be saintly continually? There's only one answer. One answer. And it's what Paul speaks in his greeting, grace and peace. Grace and peace, and particularly grace from God the Father. As this book goes on, we're going to learn what we should do in this world. There are a lot of practical things in this book, how we should live, how we should live because of our position. And from the very beginning, there's no mystery about how we are to be it by the will and the strength of God who alone can help us. It's the only way. We have no other strength, but by His grace we can triumph. I'm excited to see what God is going to do with each and every one of you. You will not be the same in this year, 2022. I don't even if you're not here with us in Ephesians, God has great things ahead for you if you are in his will. I'm excited to witness that. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to learn about a man who was driven was highly intelligent, but did not follow you, that was totally against you, but you came and changed him. You knocked him off a horse, and he became a new man in you. We thank you that he wrote a book to a town, to a city who is a lot like our cities. And your truths that you have, that he wrote to them, the truths about salvation, are as true now as they were then and will be forevermore. Lord God, as we go through this, may you open our eyes, strengthen us, help us to live for you in a world that is definitely against you, but in a world that needs to hear the gospel. Lord God, we praise you. I pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.